Hello, Erica. Hi, Dwayne. Hello, Austin. What's going on, Dwayne? Are you ready to talk about Right to Work? Yes. Yes. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is Right to Work and was recorded on January 29, 2020. Here, introducing themselves are your colleagues helping with this issue. I'm Erica Jednak. I'm the Director of Employment Initiatives for Stand Together. I'm Austin Bannon, Senior Policy Analyst of Employment Policy at Americans for Prosperity. I'm really excited to be able to uh, to do this podcast because this is one of those areas that I've been around a lot, but I'm going to be quite honest, I don't understand all the nuances of it, and I, I want to learn more about this. So we're talking about right to work. So help me understand, you know, from the right, from our perspective, what we're, what we're standing for here with right to work. What does that even mean? It means a lot of things to a lot of people, but if we're if we're really sort of ironing out what what the actual policy is, uh, to to boil it down to a simple concept, it's the right of employees to choose whether or not they're going to financially support a union as a condition of employment. So what what you're saying is there are instances where an employee may be forced to financially support a union. Is that that happens? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there are. Uh, 27 states that are right to work right now, um, and that's that's a number that's been growing in recent years. But uh, for most uh, uh, for most of the 20th century, it was actually the fact that the majority of states, uh, private sector workers, did not have a choice in this matter. Uh, once a union was uh, entered into a workplace and became a, a negotiator for for bargaining contracts, everybody had to pay something to the union, whether they were interested in uh, having that representation or not. What is it? What does that look like? Is that is that? I'll use me for an example. So I I go to, to get a job at uh, let's say I, I go back to work at the nuclear power plant that's near my house. Um, I've taken welding courses, graduated. I want to go work at this nuclear power plant. They're not a right to work state, so I go to work at this facility. I don't want to join a union, but I'm going to have m- money taken from me anyway to go to a union. Is that is that what this is saying? Yes, that's correct. Uh, And we often talk about right-to-work laws. So the states that do have right-to-work, it prevents someone from being fired. But a lot of times, uh, to your point, it means folks can't get hired in the first place. So real-life example, during the recession, I uh, was holding down a few different part-time jobs. And I went and got an interview at UPS to do package loading overnight to be able to uh, work with the rest of my schedule. And I think it was $8 and change per hour was uh, what I would be making. At 6 a.m., I go to interview with the supervisor. It's kind of really a formality at that point. And he says, oh, and you'll have to join the union and they'll take this much out of your paycheck. And I said, oh, no, thank you. (laughs) Uh, It's very polite of you. (laughs) Thank you for your offer. (laughs) I'll go my own way. Right. Especially when you're only making eight bucks and change, right? To to have a chunk of your paycheck come out of 
which I thought, I'm never going to see this. This is probably a seasonal job, right, for mm-hmm. me. Um, it's hourly overnight. And uh, we went back and forth quite a bit because he said, oh, no, it's not an option. You have to. And I said, well, I don't have to do anything. No, thank you. <laughs> and that's when I learned my state is not a right-to-work state. So you wouldn't even have it. They would They would make you join the union or – because here's here's what confuses me. I've heard some people say that when you when you aren't in a right to work state, you take the job, you don't have to join the union, but you're still paying dues. And then others say, well, you're not paying dues, you're paying fees, and that's less than dues. So there's still, for me anyway, a lot of confusion about what exactly is going on. I don't know if that's by design or you know if this is supposed to be kind of confusing the folks. But if I if I go to join and I say I don't want to join the union. Do I have to join the union or am I just working there and they're taking fees to service the union? So in my case, I did not get that job. Big surprise, right? Uh, But this is also important when we talk about government unions. So before there was a a U.S. Supreme Court uh, case called Janus versus AFSCME. And before this court case, if folks did not want to be part of government union, they had to pay what is called agency um, – they were agency fee payers. So those were fees because they chose not to be part of the union, but they had to pay up to 85% of those dues. So dues if you're deciding to be part of the union and fees if you did not. Yeah, no, that that's right. Uh, it's, it's a case-by-case scenario in terms of how much you might pay. But there are uh, there there's what's called Beck rights, uh, and this is a a 1988 Supreme Court decision, uh, Beck First Communication Workers of America, and that kind of enshrines this notion that you uh, there there was there was a it was already in place that you didn't have to be a member officially, but there was very little distinction between paying full membership dues and paying fees. The Beck rights established a little bit more leeway um, in terms of what of what is or isn't, uh, or excuse me, a little more, the stricter standard in terms of what's considered political dues or not. Um, but it's true. Workers can decline being a member of a union and then they pay what the unions sort of deem as the necessary amount to cover their representation, their collective bargaining, um, their, their handling of workplace matters for people. Uh, but they have ways to make that number increasingly close to what full membership dues are. Uh, and that's, that's uh, part of the issue. Um, in the, the Janus case that Erica just noted, uh, the, the difference between uh, what's what's happening in the private sector and the public sector is that case only applied to federal, state, and local government employees. Uh, but the, the compelling part for the Supreme Court in this instance to sort of weigh in differently is that everything that's happening in collective bargaining negotiations in the public sector deals with matters of public concern. It's something that's going to impact the way employment looks in the public sector. It's going to impact taxes. It's going to impact policies that all of us, broadly speaking, uh, are impacted by, and therefore it's sort of a, a matter of a public uh, concern versus a private union, um, whether we agree or disagree with what a union may be doing in a particular place, it ties more closely to, to workplace matters, that place of employment, and it's not as much of a public issue. So I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this, and I admit one of those, one of those issues that I'm not as well versed on as others, so this is why I, I'm enjoying this. So what we what what the community stands for then when it comes to right to work is is we're saying 
that unions can absolutely exist. We're not saying that they shouldn't, and we're certainly not saying that that we're we want them gone. But we're saying if if I want to go work at a shop, that I should not be coerced into surrendering money that I've earned to an organization that I don't want to be a part of. That's correct. The The concept here that's really important to us is voluntary association. So it's not coercion. It's someone's choice that they be part of a union. Um, and I think this also dovetails into something you hear about from the opponents, right? Unions who are saying, well, folks who choose not to be part of a union but still get the benefits, they're free riders. We would say they're forced riders because they don't want that representation. And in most cases, and, and Austin can correct me here, it's the union's decision to actually represent these people. They do not have to. Yeah, it's, it's been pushed into federal law that exclusive representation is, is a part of the bargaining process, but they could organize differently in terms of being recognized by employers and negotiates. Uh, and there's a, a, a lot of precedent in terms of unions pushing for that policy in the first place. They don't want to have competition in the same place that they're representing. If a, if a worker, in fact, uh, had performed well in a union workplace, an employer couldn't give them a pay raise, for instance, that differed from what the contract was. Wow. So it's not only sort of a minimum standard, but it's also a maximum standard. And so that, uh, any benefits changes, you know, that, that may differ from what a collective bargaining contract is, or those are things that unions typically wouldn't want introduced in the workplace. And it's the other part about this is, is it's it's voluntary for members. Um, as, and, and as you were sort of alluding to, Dwayne, it's, it's not a pro or anti-union stance uh, in terms of, of what this is. It's a choice for individual workers and unions that are in a, a right to work uh, a state or a right to work workplace, they actually have to be more accountable to the employees. If membership is optional, they can't take for granted the type of representation they're providing, uh, the types of things they're negotiating for. And if they reach a certain standard, somebody who might be skeptical today could actually change their mind and, and decide to become a, a paying member of the union. So it's based on almost mutual benefit. And which we'll get to later, but it's not it's not coercion. So, is the uh, the most common argument against right to work the free rider argument, or is there there's something else that that I don't know about? That is that that is the the broadest one. Um, there are you know a consist there are consistent messages in, in regards to that. I think unions will um, you know argue that there, there's stronger negotiating power for themselves if everyone's represented. And as you said, if, if, if there's their, their dissenters or they're not paying, that they just can't efficiently provide that service. Um, the course in terms of what is sort of, you know, broadly argued is that um, this isn't really a free market stance, actually. There, there is, is, that, there is, is a, a... Is that the libertarian argument against right to work? Yes. I, mean, you, I see the, the article you brought me from from reason, and I'm going to read it because I, I find it interesting. But I've had more than one person say, look, there's a libertarian argument against right to work. So sure. you're saying it's not a 100% free market solution. Yeah. So the, the libertarian argument uh, or an argument that some may make is that this really isn't uh, a fair status because employers ought to have the final say in whether a, a worker would pay union uh, dues or fees or not. And this is something where, you know, why, why is the individual employee making that decision and rather them? But the, the issue, I think, that 
uh, is is sort of a deeper part of the conversation here. That's not easy to sort of bring up while we, we chat about right to work, though, is that the National Labor Relations Act that sort of governs what private sector unions look like, it requires uh, employers to accept unions in the workplace. So if there's an organizing uh, effort in the workplace and 50% plus one of the workers wish for a union to, to be their representation there, employers don't have a say in that. If employers also had a say in whether they were to, to negotiate with unions in the first place, in that sense, you could look at unions almost as an HR firm. And and if if there weren't a requirement that they, they negotiate with unions outside of their own uh, sort of permission or desire, then that would be a different scenario in which, sure, they could actually require uh, as, a, as a condition of employment in terms of freedom of contract, whether someone would pay uh, union dues or be a member or not. Uh, but as it is, um, right to work, it's it's in reflection of a sort of a status quo that's been around for, for many decades uh, in terms of, of what union policy looks like today. And so it's sort of a partial restoration where at least individual workers have the dignity of that choice. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a longer conversation in terms of what the, the labor market might look like in an ideal sense if we were reforming where we are today. You know, Dwayne, I was just thinking about the National Labor Relations Act and what would be our preferred policy on that. And it, again, goes back to voluntary association. So right now, the National Labor Relations Act is is very archaic. And it's for archaic for unions as well, because it's structured that unions have to provide every service, meaning they can't provide an a la carte menu. So imagine if they they had an HR team, right? And a different union did lobbying. And a different union uh, provided health care. Right now, that's a felony if a union operated that way. It's a felony. Uh, so I think long-term, our community would like to see the option for unions to have a la carte um, models. And frankly, in my opinion, I think it could be a revenue generator, and I think it would be an environment of voluntary association, and I think it, it'd be a win-win for everyone. So let's look at uh, this issue. We've got the uh, the network vision. And of course, we like to look at uh, these issues through the lens of the vision because any position the community takes ultimately goes back to the vision. I've, I've told people every PI issue, every every position is somehow a child of a principal in our in our in our uh, network vision, our network break barriers that stand in the way of people realizing their potential. This moves our society towards one of mutual benefit, where people succeed by helping others improve their lives. How do we look at this issue through the lens of the uh, the network vision? Sure. How is this how is this breaking barriers? Well, a big part of it uh, we had started to allude to in this conversation, but if there's a voluntary nature in terms of people's participation with unions. Uh, this isn't the case between employers and unions, as sort of alluded to with federal law, but in right to work status, that there is a dynamic in which there's a voluntary nature for individuals and whether they're going to pay unions uh, as a condition of employment. And when that's the case, it means that unions, in order to earn their support, actually have to meet the demands of what those workers are looking for. Uh, and it also allows workers to consider what their employer is going through in terms of these negotiations. Uh, on top of where the union is. Sometimes uh, once unions become representatives, uh, it's it's very difficult for workers to change what that union looks like. It, it's sort of something where the unions last for decades in the same workplace. 
Uh, there's limited chances to sort of change what that union looks like. Uh, there are chances to decertify a union if, if enough workers uh, collectively felt that way. But if you have that voluntary nature and, and individuals can start to opt out, you see a, a momentum that unions have to be accountable for. Uh, and they have a way to, to sort of have sympathy with their employer. Maybe there's something the employer wanted to negotiate on their behalf, some sort of different vacation policy or, or a, a different kind of trade-off. Uh, and unions will, in essence, you know, argue that they're, they're working on behalf of the workers in, in those negotiations. But there's a lot of different voices that aren't being represented in that, uh, that at least in this instance, there, there's much more uh, of a likelihood that they are. Dwayne, specifically about breaking barriers for people, I think about how can we empower more Americans, right, in their own lives. And part of that is making the best choices for themselves and their families, which is really integral to this this uh, right to work argument. Uh, so in Virginia, uh, the legislature is considering uh, repealing right to work and a study just came out. Uh, to put together the average private sector dues for unions in the state. And it's $750 a year. $750 a year on average. So some people pay more or less. But for a family, that could be two months worth of groceries, Dwayne. Mm -hmm. Or a week's worth at my house. <laughs> there you go. There you go. But regardless, this is a big decision, right? Are those dues worth it? And if they are, great. If they're not, that worker should have that choice. That worker should be empowered. Uh, so that's just how I think about right to work, breaking barriers. So when we've seen this, um, we've seen states go to right to work. And we're saying that when that happens, we'll break barriers. Has that been the case in those states? What's, what's happened in those states after they've gone right to work? Uh, well, first thing I, I wanted to actually note, um, this kind of came to mind, just an important point to make is that you can look at the union rates in a right to work versus a non right to work state. And it clearly shows that the, the status quo of, of a non right to work status makes the, the outcome different. Unions are going to be attracted to a place where first they can get non participants um, more easily and, and then workers uh, in that situation. Um, as you can see, when they have the right to, to, to work um, status, that they're able to exercise that right and it changes the dynamic uh, in the workplace. So there's there's clearly you can see personal preference play out more in a right to work state. But yeah, in, in terms of uh, in terms of results, um, right to work states have a much lower cost of living. And when you account for that, they actually have a higher standard of living for individuals. There's been significant economic growth in right to work states. Um, that's you know, sort of outcompeting the non-right-to-work states in recent decades. Um, there's population growth in terms of people moving to those states. Uh, there's, if you look at something like a tax freedom day, how many days do you pay per year? Uh, and it's a couple weeks less in a, in a right-to-work state. And that's a reflection of, uh, you know, essentially uh, unions. It's, and it's, you can't really, especially the Janus ruling just occurred in 2018. And it's not long ago. Uh, that dynamic will play out for quite a while, but uh, you sort of can't really separate the private and public unions in terms of what right to work has looked like traditionally in the states. It was, for the most part, with, with a few exceptions, most states were either right to work for all workers or they elected to, to be non-right to work. So uh, there's just a lot of, uh, of ties to unions being you know, a, a major player in the political process in terms of what uh, budgets and, and the economy looks like. And then they take a lot of stances that 
you know, lo and behold, it's not about just the workplace and uh, what sort of wages and benefits uh, their employees get, but there's a lot of advocacy they do. Uh, and that, you know, plays out in terms of what government policy looks like in terms of taxes, burdens, uh, in terms of long-term debt, the spending, et cetera. When I think of barriers, I think about the fact that you didn't get that job. You know, that that was a, a, yeah. a big barrier. Now, did they not give you the job because you weren't interested in the union? Is that, is that what that was about? Yes. Wow. And I really needed the job at the time. I, I remember I, I literally was overdrafted my bank account by $200, and I really needed that yeah, job. We've all been there. We've all been there. <laughs> I was, yeah. And we can be. Uh, Some more frequently than others. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Just, well, I just, I was to say that, I mean, we could, you can be sympathetic to the employer because the employer may have to execute that policy, but it's not, as we sort of said, it's not their say whether you're going to be paying uh, a union or not that's set based on law. So, you know, the employer has to help execute that in order to be in compliance with, uh, with what the labor laws are, but um, they may be charged with unfair labor practices and other uh, be held accountable if they don't execute it. So it's something where um, that's, you know, been put into law. It's something unions support. And they say employers don't really have a say in that process. What about equal rights? One of, you know, the first of the mutually reinforcing principles. How do we look at this issue through the lens of equal rights? Well, I mean, one thing I would say in, in, in terms of bigger picture, I like to talk, sort of talk about a group like Americans for Prosperity or others that uh, have grassroots communities and, and, and uh, try to bring voluntary membership and, and try to bring the, the, that to bear in terms of conversations. Well, unions have a certain degree of privilege that nobody else has. They're recognized as sort of a mandatory negotiator in the public and private sector. And to have that special seat at the table where they can sort of demand something uh, that isn't inherently theirs, you know, they, they don't, they're not as, as in a special place in society or they shouldn't be in terms of what government means to them. They're, they're, they're supposed to be a private entity just like any of us are. Uh, and, and the same thing in a, in a workplace in the private sector, uh, employers don't have a, a choice as to whether they have to negotiate with the union. That just, that's, that's put on them based on law. So there's already a limitation to what mutual benefit can come from a process like that. And that's something we're looking to open up and right to work, we say, is, a, is a, at least uh, an opportunity for the individual workers to have that dignity of choice and bring some accountability in terms of the relationship of the employer and the unions and the workers. When I think about think about this, I mean, mutual benefit comes to mind all the time with this. This is where I see a lot of the emphasis being uh, when we think about the, the uh, mutually reinforcing principles. This is really about mutual benefit, because if I'm being forced to surrender money to a service that I don't want, there's absolutely no mutual benefit there. It, it it seems very clear to me. However, when you when you're talking about the fact that if they have to actually work to get my fees, work to get my dues, then and I voluntarily give them up, then clearly I feel that that the investment in this union I'm going to get more out of than than if I don't. And that comes down to mutual benefit. What am I missing? You hit the nail on the head, Dwayne. All right. Well, that's the end of the podcast, folks. No, I'm kidding. Sure. Um, there's the also, I mean, the, you know, in terms of what unions do, there's a one size fits all approach, and that's problematic. There's a certain amount of workers that may like what unions are doing, precisely what they've gone about doing in their workplace. But for each worker, when you when you're not sort of stuck to a 
uh, a particular collective bargaining contract that sort of locks in the same policy for everyone. It's it's the idea that um, you know in order to succeed somewhere and and if you have opportunity, uh, you'll you know take different courses, and each of us may find better roles to play. What will be rewarded differently, um, and in a, in a union workplace, somebody is paid based on seniority. They're paid based on the specific position title they have, and it's not it's not a, a difference uh, from one worker to the next what their productivity is. And then, what if there are different preferences? One worker wishes he or she could have more vacation uh, instead of a pay raise uh, in a particular year, or wants some flexibility in when they're going to report to work. Uh, and these are things that there's usually not flexibility. It's a one size fits all approach. Uh, and that's, you know, something that's, it's, it's much harder to sort of people to reach their, uh, you know, have fulfillment and sort of reach their true potential uh, if they're sort of all put in a, in a one size fits all position. What about the folks who say that, that this is really about union busting? I'm just going to go off on a tangent here. What if this is more about union busting and then ultimately uh, we're not talking about something that's going to result in a, a mutually beneficial agreement because at some point then the employer will have the advantage and they can start ex- exploiting the employees and paying them less than what they deserve. And you see this as, as being, I mean, that's, why couldn't that be something that ultimately results in, in situations that aren't mutually beneficial? Sure. Well, Dwayne, I love giving real world examples. So in the government union space, uh, I previously worked with a local president of a AFSCME chapter down the shore. So this is someone who really believed in the union, who's got elected as president, right? And had a number of, um, you know, colleagues who felt the same way. They wanted to be part of the union. Unfortunately, uh, when, and his name's Michael, when he got into leadership, he found that the finances were not jiving. There were other issues. Uh, They were paying to the state affiliate. And the state affiliate was spending their dues on a banquet hall in another part of the state. So they were seeing no benefit from this. Again, all pro-union guys, right? Then it comes time to negotiate their contract, and the union doesn't send anyone. They don't send a representative. And so they have to negotiate on their own. And again, that's kind of the key thing that unions say is, hey, we're negotiating for you, right? So no one shows up, right? Michael makes several phone calls, tries to reach out. At a certain point, and again, all pro-union guys, they decide, I wonder if there's alternatives. And they found out that there is a process that they could have a local union only. So this isn't just about having a union or not having a union. You can also uh, have a local union. So where you're not part of the state or national affiliate. And I wanted to point that out, Dwayne, because here are folks who otherwise totally, they wanted the representation, but they didn't feel like the current representation was the right one. Or they also looked at, was there another union that could cover them? And I think the uh, current law, whether it's at the federal or state level, creates these situations where workers don't have choice. So I I would certainly... um, you know, the, the union busting argument, it's a great talking point for the other side sometimes, but there's not always something there. Yeah. And, and uh, Erica is alluding to this, but 
the the resources you put towards a union it's it's not necessarily just staying in your workplace there's uh the decisions that are made by leadership at your workplace may may you may have issue with and then your resources may funnel to other entities within the labor movement uh that aren't accountable to what you are so to the extent that uh, a, a policy like right to work might lead to a lower amount of unionization in a state. Someone who is very pro-union in terms of what their special privilege is, uh, I mean, they, they would have a point that uh, the policy might undermine this special privilege. But in terms of what a union ought to be doing to represent workers in a voluntary fashion and, and evolving to, to meet those many different demands that, that workers might have, that's really sort of a pro-union opportunity uh, that they would evolve with uh, with a changing policy to uh, provide a lot of you know different types of services and not just rely on sort of a guarantee of, of income and a guarantee of some sort of power handed by government and rather just sort of you know build build a, a voluntary base that was probably much stronger in terms of support when when everybody actually wants to be a part of that. Equal rights and mutual benefit foster openness by allowing the free movement of ideas, resources, and people that generate knowledge, innovation, and opportunity fueling progress throughout society. How do we look at this issue through the lens of openness? Well, the the you know the actual bargaining process itself, which I've sort of said, it kind of relates to this because the reason there's a union in the workplace is because they're going to negotiate a contract, and the thing you as an individual uh, may not agree with in the union is their representation. You may also disagree with some of their politics. Um, but when you have a process that's voluntary, the actual information sharing has to be more open because a union can't bring you along and, and collect payments from you unless you have a certain degree of satisfaction uh, with what the union is doing, that you've been provided what's reassuring to you. Uh, so that's that's sort of a continual part of the process. Maybe, I'm, maybe I read this wrong. Aren't haven't union shops been called closed shops before? Am I, did I hear that somewhere else, or am I wrong there? They, they have. It's it it still lasts. Technically speaking, this was uh, back when uh, the Taft Hartley Act was passed in 1947. Not that everybody wants to uh, dig through you know old federal laws this I'll way, bet but they do. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean historically, um, unions forming kind of over the first couple centuries in the country and, and the early 20th century that was. Um, more of an official thing. So um, technically speaking, because people don't have to be members of unions, uh, you know, we could still say maybe it's a closed shop and that everybody has to pay agency fees. Um, so there's a, so maybe a debate on the true accuracy of that um, of that statement. But in, in some practical sense, it is, it is sort of a closed shop in that uh, one way or another, if you have to pay something to a union as a mandate, um, that means essentially the unions are doing the... the you know, they're, they're a key part of the hiring process. They have, their standard has to be met in terms of payment, uh, as Erica sort of uh, alluded to. And in her, you know, decision whether she was going to be employed or not, there, there was no decision uh, until she had relented paying the union. I think about innovation in here also. How, how does that, how does right to work impact innovation in a workplace? Does it create more of it? Does it stifle it? What, what's the impact there? You know, there's the the individual workers. Uh, I've I've noted that in in a, a union workplace, essentially the, the contracts look at everybody the same, and there's not a difference uh, in terms of what one worker might do for another in terms of how they're recognized. And so, unless you have you know a particularly close knit working unit, 
and there's such a good degree of, of um, you know, of emission and, and management oversight that somehow integrates the, the the union contract in a certain way that you really have a hard time overcoming um, what that looks like. Finally, self-actualization. Everyone's favorite. Love talking about self-actualization. How is it that right to work helps achieve this final uh, principle? It's having power over your paycheck. That's something that an individual, um, you know, has with this. Um, as we say, it's not a, it's not the the perfect policy in that there's other restrictions that that interfere with the employment uh, decisions between employers and employees, and unions not being, you know, sort of a, a fully voluntary entity at the workplace that they have a way to, um, through federal law, to sort of enter a workplace. So that's that's something that's. Um, difficult to overcome, but it's, uh, as I say, an individual in a, in a non-unionized workplace, uh, unless unions and maybe some instances, you know, are more open about this in, in those workplaces, there's a much greater chance that they have a chance to innovate and look for new opportunities, ways to grow a business. A lot of times the union contract is built on the current model of what the workplace looks like and sort of, uh, even related to your, your previous question, um, you know, innovation is is actually is something that some people have researched in this space. And when you have a union that's that's kind of created a more rigid workplace, uh, sometimes they've um, negotiated certain things that are more costly for employers, and it's harder for them to maybe afford or at least to follow the model that they want. There's actually a, a strong correlation that research and development uh, funding, what what uh, what organizations and what businesses put towards that, is actually reduced. Uh, to somewhat of an equal degree of whatever, let's just say a union, if you compare the costs of their workplace to a, a non-unionized workplace that's in the same industry, the difference in that sort of inflated cost and the rigidity is sort of reflected in, in what their reductions are. So it's a business that uh, maybe you don't see those, you know, it fall behind in the near term, but over a course of years or, or a decade or two, a large company may look very different than one that, that wasn't unionized. I also think about what, what Erica was saying. She's Taking a job pays about eight dollars an hour, and you said that union dues for some folks were over seven hundred dollars a year. And maybe maybe it's a different job, but that that that's like a, over a week's worth of pay. So that's an extra week's worth of pay that you could have to do whatever you wanted with. And maybe that maybe that extra week's worth of pay goes towards a training program that you really want to take that will get you out of an eight dollar an hour job into maybe a fifteen or twenty dollar an hour job, and. These dues that or fees that you're being forced to pay, you know, those could go towards a life that helps you live up to your potential rather than I don't have that because it was taken from me and given to an entity that I don't agree with. Right, Dwayne. And I think the other concept here is about earned success. So the Stand Together community really is supporting folks to earn success, right, have meaningful work and provide for themselves and their families. And this is about choice, right? Now, I did okay, I guess, right? I didn't get that job at UPS, but I'll, I'll tell you, I remember how upset I was that I didn't get that job and, and how much I really needed it at the time. And so if you think about that, right, folks across America who can't get the job that they want, right, even though they are otherwise very qualified, that's a barrier, right? And when we're talking about folks reaching their potential, they should be allowed, right? Like this is America. They should be allowed to to go get that job, right? Um, and maybe it is a, a stepping stone, right? 
Um, and just even talking about the financial aspect, right, of dues, uh, whether that's groceries, whether that's education, whether that's medical expenses, we should be supporting people to meet their basic needs and then, you know, cover for emergencies, right? And so uh, part of this is is the self-actualization process, and we want to make sure that we're um, setting the right incentives that people can earn success. That's, uh, you know, something too, if, if there's, there's a lot of ways that somebody could experience um, the impact of unions in terms of how firms operate. Um, uh, one that uh, people may uh, have some experience with is they'll wonder why, why is my mailbox up by my doorstep versus out in the street? This is something you'll see somewhere. Um, and you'll find out that unions have you know, rather than there being a more efficient route, there's a way to sort of protect the amount of jobs that uh, that they sort of have domain over. They want to make sure there's more people paying dues or fees to the union. Uh, and so if, if there's a, a route that's more efficient, that's actually better for the taxpayers, uh, better for the, the bottom line of, of the Postal Service and its efficiency. Uh, there's, you know, ways to negotiate against that. Uh, my, my experience, Erica would have a different one, um, you know, in New Jersey than, than myself growing up in Georgia. But, you know, I didn't uh, experienced it so much as, as when I started to enter this world and going out to a convention in San Francisco and my boxes show up uh, to, to set up a booth uh, for my organization. And, you know, and, and lo and behold, as I'm picking up my box of magazines that I'm going to carry, I have, you know, several large people blocking me off. And I, you know, I'm looking around to see if there's some sort of, uh, you know, commotion, there's a fight in the background, or there's some safety thing, somebody's pulling a gun and it's just me carrying boxes, but there was a particular part of their union contract that nobody touches these things, only we do. And so there's so many things that, uh, that you know, you may experience that people don't necessarily look at it as a part of the, um, the power of a union that, you know, isn't sort of in a voluntary environment, but uh, it, it plays out in many different ways. You got to wonder about the opportunity for self-actualization when you know that you have a job, not because you're the best to do it or because it's your comparative advantage or you enjoy it, but because there are large people out there willing to block the path of other people who can do this. I can't imagine you'd get a lot of satisfaction out of doing that job. Maybe it's just me. What is it that we haven't talked about that we need to still? There's a a notion that it, it maybe it comes across in this that uh, even though we, we've noted that we're not for or against the idea of unions, we, you know, everybody has freedom of association uh, and, and the right to, uh, you know, try to support a union and see if they can help represent them. But, uh, you know, looking at the future or well, what, you know, what could a union look like if it was better? And there's if if they weren't given special privileges, it doesn't mean that there wouldn't be a place uh, for a union. Maybe they, but we'd see it as maybe they'd evolve to something different. In terms of advocacy, they could be more like Americans for Prosperity, right? They'd have volunteers um, that, you know, they weren't going on strike because they're getting paid uh, to go on strike, but instead they're going to a rally because there's a cause they believe in or they're giving it to the unions for that. Um, that's a, uh, you know, one aspect of it. There's things that unions do that uh, may be valuable. They do actually provide training services in the trades. They may teach someone how to be a, a good, you know, electrical worker, um, and that doesn't mean that we necessarily support the, the way licensing laws, uh, you know, may lead people into to, through certain training and professions. But unions, uh, by all means, they actually have some traditional capabilities that 
in the right system, it doesn't mean that there wouldn't be people that would look to them for those services, but we would have a much better sense of what that value is if it was a voluntary you know, transaction in each instance. It's almost as if the, the, the laws and the mandates and, and the, uh, the coercion limits the creative destruction that could create something even better than what they have now. In fact, uh, part of what labor laws do is, is they don't actually allow formal working groups to, uh, in terms of like talking about employment issues between employers and employees. Only unions can do this based on federal law. There's a limitation to any type of working committees or councils or other things you might do in the U.S. that would be a productive relationship where maybe an employer would say that, that you know, I want to work uh, with, with my employees and understand what their concerns are and and change some of our, our contracts. I want to change some of our employment practices. In a, in, in a non-union workplace, maybe you can do that as an individual, but there may actually be power in, in people working together in, in a collective sense, you know, in terms of some kind of working group or other meetings. And there's literally a restriction to that. It's It's been built where unions are sort of the, the monopoly uh, entity, not by choice, but by mandate. So, and... For folks who are listening in, there are work councils in Europe, right? And so there are other examples that we can actually look to. Uh, this is part of the a la carte model, right? If it was just a totally voluntary system, uh, it could be, frankly, a revenue generator for unions. They could specialize. So a, a lot of that is just lost in current archaic federal law. Not to mention, uh, uh, and one other aspect is that this right to work status is it plays out differently. So there's a Janus Supreme Court ruling that ensured this for government employees, but federal employees are have their own Federal Labor Relations Board. State and local employees have their own, uh, you know, essentially labor boards that that the states set up for the for the employees there. The National Labor Relations Board covers most private sector employees, and that's essentially uh, what the, what the right to work law applies to in terms of states having leeway. Um, they even with or without that federal law, they would have had leeway with their own public employees because it's their their employees. Uh, but then there's also a national mediation board and airline and railway employees that are in unions. They actually don't have a right to work status in the right to work states. They're in their own whole separate entity. Uh, so it's it's um, that's something that um, you know is, is sort of hard for people to wrap their minds around in terms of how many different um, scenarios are out there for workers depending on what industry you're in. Um, but it's another uh, you know, aspect where even the, the right to work status we, we're talking about isn't applied you know, for, for everyone. Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's Top Priority, please email them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks again for listening.